Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. Excited to continue talking about Exodus as we go through the people of Israel leaving Egypt and headed toward the Promised Land. We're going to be in Exodus 32 today. So just a reminder of where we've been. Uh, the people are still in the wilderness. Um, we just did the Ten Commandments last week, and now um, they are still in the Sinai area, and Moses is receiving more of the law, that Ten Commandments being the uh, beginning of the receiving of the law. And now, too, just want to remind ourselves that this period is not the 40 years of wandering in the desert that is going to come on this group. Spoiler. Um, we have not yet gotten to that part. This is a, like a few months after they've left Egypt and they are on their way to the promised land. So just to be clear, they will eventually wander in the desert. This is not part of that. This is all part of the original plan that the people would be super obedient and that they would come here. It's not worked out super well that so far it's going to get worse, but um, that's where we're at. They've been out of Egypt now for a few months. Um, however, the people are going to continue to show their continued lack of resolve to trust God and to instead long for Egypt. Uh, this story is the story of the golden calf, so one that you may be familiar with. Now, uh, just a brief reminder, too, about what this uh, time in the uh, wilderness of Sinai is like and near Mount Sinai. So God has descended on Mount Sinai with thunder, lightning, cloud, fire, um, and he started by giving the Ten Commandments. So God spoke these Ten Commandments directly to the people. Uh, I think I may have said last week that Moses told the people the Ten Commandments. So that was incorrect. And I apologize if that's what I said. That's the best of my recollection. Um, so I want to make that clear. The, those were spoken to the people directly. And that's important for two reasons. One, it's going to give them no reason to have forgotten um, that they are about to break a commandment. And two... If I said something wrong, it's God's word, and I'd like to correct it if I did wrong. So apologize again for that. So after God has spoken these Ten Commandments to the people, Moses is going to go up and continue to meet with God on the mountain to receive more of what we will come to call the Mosaic Law. So not a big deal, just a law that will stand for millennia after this, so whatever, I don't know. Uh, the people, though, are going to have to stay at the base of the mountain. They are not allowed anywhere near the mountain. They are not allowed to touch the mountain. Uh, they're not allowed to look at it. No, I'm just kidding. They could probably look at it. But um, because this is a place where God has chosen to descend, this is uh, where God is meeting with Moses, and it is not to be trifled with. God is not to be trifled with, and that's something that the people are given clear instructions about. So the people are chilling at the base. Moses is up on the mountain, and this is what unfolds. So starting in verse one of chapter 32 going through verse four. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so Moses, remember, he's up on the mountain, apparently for a long time. So we actually see in Exodus 24, 18, that it says he was up there for 40 days. So um, he's up there a really long time. Uh, also 40 days is kind of a, 
can be a figure of speech in the Old Testament, kind of like if you were to say, um, my mom went to the store and she was there forever and it was really just like 30 minutes. Um, but we generally accept forever to just mean a long period of time. That's kind of how 40 days can work in the Old Testament too, or it can mean literal 40 days. So if you're if ever in doubt, I say, let's go with the literal one. It says 40 days, we'll go with 40 days. If it was longer or shorter, whatever. The point is that it was a long time. And so the people started to wonder if he was ever going to come down. So we see earlier on in the Sinai narrative that he's coming down and talking to the people with, with some frequency. So they're seeing him a little more often. And so now they're like, maybe he's not coming down this time. Uh, so they decided that they wanted a physical manifestation of God to worship. So just to be clear too, this was intended to worship Yahweh, okay? Uh, it's not maybe, not maybe totally, especially when they say make us gods who will go before us. But the idea is that uh, this, this idol would represent God, okay? So it's not just like a totally like, hey, let's, what's your favorite animal? Oh, I really like cows. All right, let's make one of those and worship it. It's not that so much, but this is still clearly a violation of God's command. Second commandment. He doesn't get very far at all before he says, don't make any idols. And the one before that, uh, don't worship any other gods before me. Okay, so it's kind of this idea, we want a physical manifestation. Um, we want to be able to worship God, but we're tired of worshiping a God we can't see. So that's kind of, it's not totally just like, let's reject God, but it is obviously a clear disobedience. So Moses isn't there. So they go for Aaron. Now they probably also know that Moses would have been none too happy with this, but they go for Aaron, um, who apparently gets kind of peer pressured. Um, and so he makes them a golden statue of a calf or a young bull. So then they, he makes it out of gold. He takes all their jewelry and melts it down and makes a golden calf. And then the people say, ah, Israel, these are your gods. These are the ones who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So again, the it, it's maybe this little mix of like the people aren't fully embracing their new monotheistic lifestyle, but they're also recognizing like the point is to worship the God who brought us up out of Egypt. So it's kind of a kind of a little mix. But if you're like me, you're probably like, what in the world is going on? Like, why is this what they've chosen to do for their worship? Why? Why? Uh, and then if you're like me, you're probably also wondering why a calf? Why a cow? Listen, we're Texans. I love a, a good cow as much as the next person. Okay. But I've, and while they're, you know, physically imposing, I would never think, ah, yes, what a creature worthy of worship. Um, so why in the world a calf or a young bull? A young bull is probably most uh, most akin to what they're they're going for. So uh, Douglas Stewart, who wrote the commentary on Exodus that I've been using, um, which has been very helpful, he says this quote: "A vigorous young bull seemed to the Egyptians an appropriate way to represent a truly powerful god." Okay, so this is this kind of syncretism. So syncretism being the uh, com combining of two streams of religious thought into one, this kind of syncretistic way of like, yeah, we're going to worship Yahweh, but we're still also kind of integrating our lives in Egypt and what we are familiar with from our time in Egypt. Okay. So they then are going to offer sacrifices to this golden calf. So 
we see here a couple different things. One, just a disobedience of Yahweh. And two, we see that uh, the influence of their life in Egypt is still having this effect, that they still just can't seem to get rid of the things that were important to them while they were in Egypt, something they have struggled with greatly in any times where they were afraid. So that's what's going on while Moses is up on the mountain. But he will soon find out God is going to tell Moses how things are going, starting in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Okay, so God tells Moses things have gotten ugly while he's away. I also like the, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, it's almost like God is passing the buck, like, these are your people, I don't know, these are mine. I don't think that's really his intention, but it's just kind of funny that he's like, these are your people, not mine. They don't feel like mine right now. Um, and he tells them what's going on. He's like, you need to stop this um, while you've been away. So then also God tells Moses, basically leave me alone so I can destroy the people. And instead, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Which when you hear that, you're like, oh, oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. There's a lot of implications with that. Um so basically, uh, and I think it is important before we continue that we recognize some of the rhetorical nature of this as well. So first kind of inclination um, that this is the case is he tells Moses to leave me alone as if like Moses could be there, being there could stop him from what he wants to do, right? So there's clearly this rhetorical, it's almost like an invitation. Like, so God's saying, leave me alone. Um, it's almost this invitation for Moses to intervene, to intercede. Um, and we we see God have times like this where he will proclaim something where it, it really kind of seems maybe more like an invitation. We'll talk about a couple of those, a couple of those things here in a bit. So Moses, after he hears this, um, he responds and he is going to plead with God. So starting in verse 11, Moses says, or it says, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Okay, so Moses pleads with God not to do what he is suggesting here in uh, verse 10. And he gives him three reasons. He's basically the first one that the works in, that he did in Egypt wouldn't be in vain. That these people, he brought them out with the great power and a mighty hand. We don't want those works to be in vain. Second, he doesn't want God to be profaned in Egypt. That people might have cause to say, see, that God, he's evil. He just brought them out with evil intent and he all, he wanted to destroy them all along. And then third, he, the third reason he gives is 
for God to keep his promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name, of course, was changed to Israel. So he says, you promised them, and he even mentions that part, he swore by his own self, which we've talked about in relationship with the Abrahamic covenant, that he swore even by his own self, and he tells them, and Moses is pleading with God, keep your promise that you made, and we see that God chooses to relent. So anytime we see something like God relenting from something, it can make us a little bit uncomfortable. It can make us a little bit uncomfortable to think that God is uh, changing his mind. We are, you know, we typically believe, and I believe rightly so, that God's plan is in place and that he doesn't change his mind, that he always is moving forward with the plan that is predetermined, right? Now, Here's how I think we should look at instances like this. And we'll, we'll actually talk about this from a couple of different angles. So there's a couple of different um, ways that we see similar um, kind of, um, in, I would call them, I call it, called it a rhetorical suggestion or maybe um, an invitation. An, an invitation is really what I think I would call this. And a couple of other instances that we see that one I mentioned briefly with Jonah and Nineveh, he basically tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, um, I'm planning to destroy them, so just go ahead and tell them to repent, and then I can uh, destroy them when they don't. And of course, we know that Jonah avoids going to Nineveh, and the biggest reason he wants to avoid going to Nineveh is because he's worried that God's going to forgive him. That's like his whole reason. So uh, in the end, of course, he goes and he's like, hey, repent, God might be mean to you or whatever. He gives a very haphazard message, but the people respond and they repent and sackcloth and God relents of the what he said he was going to do to Nineveh, okay? And then also think about uh, Abraham and Isaac, okay? When uh, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And then, of course, as Abraham walks in obedience, he stops him. Now, in both of those instances, I don't think any of us would have trouble saying God already knew what his plan was in both of those instances. Really, those invitations were for the people that he was inviting basically into that decision. So God, um, it appears clear he always planned to have mercy on the people of Nineveh and that he knew they would repent. Okay, but he wanted Jonah to be obedient and he wanted to show how far he's willing to go so that people could have an opportunity to repent how long-suffering he is. With Abraham and Isaac, God was not hopeful that um, Isaac would be killed in this process. Rather, this was a an invitation for Abraham to trust God, okay? And so I think it's important that we see this in a similar way because we know that, again, in Genesis, uh, I believe it's in 22, um, God swears by his own self to Abram that he is going to do the thing that he promised in the Abrahamic covenant, which was to make him into a great nation, that all the people of the world would be blessed by him, um, that he would have land, um, descendants, and that this blessing would go to the ends of the earth. Okay, and this is actually after the Abraham and Isaac situation that he swears by himself. So we know that God has already given this covenant, that it was going to be eternal, that it was not going to be conditional at all. We talked a little bit about that last week in our Ten Commandments one. So we know that's what God's heart is. But this is an invitation from Moses. And Moses, 
takes that opportunity and implores God not to take out this uh, punishment on the people. And it's also somewhat of a test for Moses. Moses could have gone from uh, important guy in Moses, or I mean, I'm sorry, in Abraham's line to um, the lines named after me. He said, I'll make a great nation of you. Okay. And so again, we know that God already had his plans for Abraham and his descendants. So this really gives Moses an opportunity to act in obedience, which he does. And he implores with God, he on, on, based on his character, don't do this. I, I'm not interested in having a nation made, named after me. And that's the effect of what he says. And then God relents from the disaster that he had spoken of. Now, again, if this had been God's true plan, um, and that was absolutely what he wanted, then Moses complaining about it wouldn't have changed anything, right? But instead, Moses shows his faithfulness to God and his faithfulness to the people in how he responds with humility and with a desire for the people to be forgiven. Okay. Now, let's take this to the other side. Okay. There is a balance that exists in God's determined will and his willingness to listen to his people. Okay. We, you can't meaningfully read scripture without a belief that prayer is legitimately a way for us to ask that God would do something and that he would be willing to do it. Okay. So God's determined will, those are those things that are fixed. Those are those things that God, I pray that you won't um, have mercy on anybody and that no one will receive forgiveness. Like, no, that's in God's determined will. He's made it happen through Jesus. Uh, I can't pray away what is determined in God's will. But also if we read throughout the old Testament, we read in the Psalms, we read in the new Testament, we see that people call out to God and that God hears them. And sometimes we are tempted to think of prayer as, oh, God, God doesn't actually answer prayer. He just really wants us to talk with him. It's about having a relationship. It's not about him answering our prayers. Now, prayer is absolutely about us having a relationship with God and talking to him. That's absolutely true. But we shouldn't limit prayer to that out of maybe a fear of disappointment. Okay, sometimes we put that up as a wall because whenever prayers aren't answered, we want to have maybe a, a nice reason, a nice protection to not feel uh, disappointed, um, to not feel um, maybe like it's a, a hit to our faith. Um, so we just kind of uh, mute prayer to like, oh, it's prayer is just this little thing about us talking to God. But we that's just not the story that scripture tells about prayer. If we truly believe that prayer is powerful, then... Um, we are going to pray powerfully, right? So if we think that prayer is not that important, we're not going to pray very powerfully. So just some examples of things that we see in scripture. I'm just going to give you a couple examples. So one, um, King Hezekiah, at one point, he gets very sick unto death. And I believe even um, one of the prophets tells him like, yeah, you're going to die. But he prays to God and God heals him. Now was God's um, plan always to heal him, whether he prayed or not. That's one of those kind of like, okay, you can't really ever answer that question. Right. Um, but it, it seems clear in the scripture that he, God answered Hezekiah's prayer. So I, I would, what I would say is it was entirely possible that within God's flexible will. So it wasn't obviously affecting his determined will that maybe if Hezekiah hadn't prayed and just been like, okay, maybe he would have died again. We can't know, but I think it's reasonable to say that could possibly be true, but he prayed and he was healed. 
Okay. Think about Peter in prison. So Peter was in prison. I believe it's Acts 12. Um, and he, uh, the people are uh, in a house. The believers are praying for Peter and he has a miraculous escape. Now, if the people hadn't been praying for Peter, would he have been able to miraculously escape? Possible. But is it entirely possible that he would have been there for a little longer until God found, God decided some other way for Peter to be gone? I, I think that's also reasonable to believe and that the pr powerful prayers of these believers on Peter's behalf made a difference and that God listened. Okay. Now let's take it to the other side where sometimes there are prayers that don't get answered. Uh, probably the most famous one when Jesus before the cross, he says, if there is any other way, may this cup be taken from me. Okay, so that obviously fell within God's determined will because Jesus, in talking with the Father, um, says, can we figure out some other way? And it's basically, this is the way. This is what we're going to do. This is the preordained plan. Um, and again, not that Jesus didn't know that, but rather more maybe an expression of his grief. But we see that even in that, God's determined will comes through. Or with Paul, when he talks about having thorn in the flesh and he asked that God would take it away, and God doesn't because God has his own purposes for that thorn in the flesh for Paul, that he might rely on the strength of God rather than on his own. Okay, I just say thorn in the flesh because that's what it says and we don't know what it means. So that's all we get. So all that to say, we kind of hold this balance between there is God's determined will and there are things that we could pray against that will still happen. And we have to learn to be okay with that. But then we also need to not allow that to make us think that God's not listening because prayer is something that's talked about so much in the scripture and for it to be just about talking to God or um, just about like our relationship with him, then I think that that's how we would see prayer play out in scripture. But we see prayer play out in special miraculous ways. So it can be hard for us because we don't want it, that disappointment, but that's what prayer is in scripture. Okay. So this instance with Moses. Um, I think this is something that we, one thing that we should take from this is God listened to Moses. Now, was he ever planning to destroy the people of Israel? I, I would say, I don't think so. Again, I'm not going to say with certainty, he definitely wasn't though. The um, fact, the promises he made seem to lend themselves to that, but either way we are given this example. Remember God didn't, it's not some biography somebody wrote about God. This is God's word, right? He put this in here for a reason, for us to see it for a reason. And so there's something for us to learn from it. And Moses' faithfulness in this um, had positive results. And so I hope that for us, when we encounter areas where God's call, inviting us into faithfulness, into powerful prayer, that we will accept that as well. Um, okay, so... We didn't make it very far. I'll tell you, the study of this passage got away from me very quickly. I have, was like, oh, yeah, we'll be able to get hit here, 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 and then we'll come to this. And then I think just what the Lord made clear to me is just this idea of who he is and who we are and prayer and these kind of things. So I kind of it's almost like a sidetrack, but I feel strongly that that's what the Lord was speaking in, in my heart on this passage. And I hope that this is uh, helpful for you as well. And you don't feel totally shortchanged on the story. But we will return to the story here. And Moses comes down now after he and God have had this conversation. Uh, Moses is uh, angry, probably doesn't quite do it justice. Uh, he actually breaks the tablets that had the Ten Commandments. Whoops. So we'll, he'll, get him, he'll get a new set, don't worry. 
Um, and then he takes the idol and he burns it. Okay. Everything burns. He burns it up and then he grinds it to powder and he puts it in the water supply and he makes the people drink it. I just like have this idea that people are like really like ashamedly scooping water out of their hands into their mouth. Moses is like walking around. He's like looking really angrily. They're like, Moses, we don't like this water. It tastes so great. There's so many grounds in here. He's like, you're going to drink it. You're going to drink this water. Okay. So he's mad. He wants them to pay. He wants them to have that symbolism of this is the consequence of your sins you're, and you're going to drink it and you're going to like it. That's kind of what how I read it. But this is um, when Moses confronts Aaron. This is what Aaron says. It says, and Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Okay, so Moses confronts Aaron and gives him some responsibility for this. And so Aaron's basically like, you know how uh, determined to be evil these people are. And I just threw the gold into the fire and then this calf came out. It's like he's acting like this calf was birthed from the fire or something like that. Not that what it actually happened is that he took out a carving tool and made it himself right so Aaron trying to pass the buck but obviously God is angry at the people his wrath is kindled against the people Moses as well so Moses calls the people to repentance and he basically says uh who is on the Lord's side is what he tells them and he says if you are on the Lord's side come to me and the people um, that are the descendants of Levi come to Moses okay and so the people that responded to this call basically kind of go on an inquisition of sorts and they kill those who refuse to repent of the sin that they committed. And then a plague comes on the people. Okay. So this is clearly an act of God's righteous judgment, but God's righteous judgment in situations like this can still make us uncomfortable. Right. And you hear that. uh, So I believe 3000 people, it says are, are killed by this. And I don't think we get a number on the plague, but it's uh, 3000 people are killed by the, uh, the Levites. And um, then there's a plague and obviously people would have died and, you know, things like that can make us uncomfortable. We want everybody to be okay. Right. We want everybody to be fine. We don't want to see God taking um, serious measures like this. And that's just really, um, that's really our issue is what it comes down to. Um, God's judgment makes us uncomfortable, but we have to also be willing to learn from God's judgment. It teaches us a few things here. Uh, One, sin is serious in the eyes of a holy God. Okay, I think one of the things we struggle with most probably in our present day and our struggle with God's justice or God's wrath is I I don't think we have a a very serious opinion of sin. We think, oh, we're not, like, people aren't that bad. Like, you, oh, it's it's okay that they did that. That's not that bad. How could a person who was really nice, but maybe they didn't believe in Jesus, like the idea of them having uh, eternal punishment seems really, really harsh to us. Um, and there's, you know, a compassion in there. But I think that what it can come down to for us, too, is we don't maybe understand the seriousness of sin. We can see a person that we're like, oh, that person was pretty nice, um, and that's good enough for us. Um, but we have to remember that we 
are the people of a holy God, a morally perfect God, a God who is totally distinct, a God who um, has no sin and does not tolerate sin. Um, and sin is serious. Even things that we might not consider very serious, um, sins are serious. And so that's one thing that God's judgment teaches us. Uh, second, um, I think what we see from the punishment on these people who would not repent of this idolatry is that having idolaters in the nation would have been very harmful to those who wanted to continue in a pure worship of God. Um, they would have, we see all throughout Israel's history that those who seek idolatry, um, they take the hearts away uh, from the people who are wanting to follow God. People are tending to fall into idolatry all throughout Israel's history. So having idolaters in the nation would have been very harmful, um, a distraction and a temptation for those who were seeking to follow God. And I think the third thing that we have to see here is that God's judgment also shows that God was gracious. Okay, so he relented from this idea of destroying all the people. He gave the people this chance to repent. Who will uh, align themselves with the God of Israel? Um, and he was gracious to those. And those who repented um, were offered forgiveness, even though they had sinned. So recognizing that he is gracious to the people of Israel and that he's also gracious to us. These are things that we learn about God from his judgment in general, but I think this is uh, makes for a nice case study for us to understand, even though sometimes God's judgment makes us uncomfortable, just using that as an opportunity to look to God as, okay, what, what needs to be changed about my mind instead of me trying to change God's mind? So, and then also as we move forward in the rest of this passage, moving into chapter 33, we're going to see that God's relationship with Moses also gives us a really beautiful glimpse into his character. And remembering that this is in the context of a uh, right after these people's disobedience and then also working with Moses, who is not perfect. So uh, verses 9 through 11, we see this about the tent of meeting where Moses would go to meet with God after the time on the mountain. It says, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And then moving down to verse 14, we see this conversation between God and Moses. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So we see the, the ways that this relationship is described, that Moses would go to talk to God and that his presence would descend in this cloud. And it said, thus the Lord would speak to Moses as a man speaks to his friend, this personal language. And then Moses asking, will you go with us? If, if you don't go with us, then please don't let us go up from here. We don't want, I don't want us to go somewhere where you're not going to be. And the Lord just giving this promise to Moses that he will go with him and that he has found favor. And then that I know you by name. Not this idea that he's aware of what Moses' name is, but that they have this personal 
relationship between the God of the universe and this person who used to try to get out of everything that God would try to get him to do. And that they formed this beautiful relationship, this personal relationship that the Lord would say, I know you by name, that I speak to you as a, a man would speak to his friend. So as we apply this passage, I really hope that this can be an opportunity for us to meditate on God's character, to be reminded that God is perfect and that sin is serious, to be reminded that there was a, a huge price paid by Jesus on the cross that shows the seriousness of that sin, but that also shows the graciousness of God, remembering that this same loving, gracious, personal God of Moses is our God too. That even though there is judgment for sin, that there's also this love, this graciousness, this personal element. You know, we often talk about our personal relationship with Jesus. And sometimes, um, you know, we can even think like, oh, we don't need to overemphasize, you know, that our relationship with God is personal. We shouldn't overemphasize that it's personal to uh, somehow isolate ourselves. But to say that God is personal, um, we see it here in Exodus. We see how personal this God is. We see it in Genesis with how he interacts with the patriarchs. God has always been a personal God, and he wants us to have that personal relationship. He wants us to approach him with prayer, not just to talk to him, not just for the relationship, but also to legitimately ask as a child would ask of a father. So I just want to encourage us all that we go to God in confidence and a confidence that's not in our own righteousness or in our own knowledge, or in our own worthiness, but rather a confidence that's rooted in the person and the work of Jesus. Mm -hmm.